Well, good evening, midweekers. So good to see you. Hey, before we pray and jump into the word, um, three weeks from tonight on February 28th, is that right? Is it the seventh today? Yeah, thank you. Got one, amen. That's all I need. So we'll be having um, kind of a special worship night. And, um, you know, we'll be sharing the word, but it's going to be in the midst of worship. And, and we feel like that God would have us to minister to him. And in doing so, there's such powerful things that happen in the midst of worship. And so we just sort of envision that night of also being a night of prayer. We want to pray for the sick. You know, we... Um, like today, every Wednesday, we, we do a prayer walk um, and we, we just walk around the property and we grab all the prayer requests that have come in uh, from the previous week and, uh, and we pray uh, for, for everyone who is asking for it. And there's a lot of prayers that are for healing, requests for healing and people suffering physically or, you know, dealing with all, all these kind of issues. And, and so we see that night being a night, too, where we want to invite people, man, are you, are you needing healing? Come. And, and we want to lay hands and, and pray for you. And, and, of course, prayer is a part of our, uh, all of our Wednesday night meetings. But, but that'll be a unique kind of a night that we'll do on occasion, so the first one will be February 28th. All right, let's pray. Lord, as we come to the word tonight, we, Lord, love the, the clarity, Lord, that we have, we have authoritative, clear truth that we can believe that we can live by, that we can base our lives upon, that give us insight into who you are, into who we are, into the condition of the world and why things are the way they are. So speak to us tonight and uh, let your word uh, go deep into us tonight and bear fruit. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. Well, we're in kind of, you know, the, the first few chapters of Romans are so kind of just gritty and, and intense, and it's an indictment of humanity. It's like things are not good for humans. <laughs> Apart from God and, and what he's done, things are not good. The human condition is not pretty. And so right out of the gate in chapter one, Paul declared he wasn't ashamed of the gospel. Because it is the power of God unto salvation to those who believe. So humans need salvation. And I think it was, was it last week? Might have been Sunday. But uh, that, you know, people, they think, man, if I just do my best and so on, maybe I'll get a pass and I'll get, you know, I'll get accepted by God on that day. But in John 3 verse 20, it says, well, we're condemned already. 
that sentence has been passed already. You can't overturn that. That's the default human condition. We've all sinned. And so that's why we have to be saved. That's why Jesus came. So Paul then began his indictment of pagan people, idolaters who refuse to be grateful to their creator. Don't underestimate gratitude, by the way. The power of gratitude in your life. It's like, I think I've said this before, it's like a superpower. Like if you can practice gratitude, being grateful in all circumstances, like it inoculates you from, from all kind of, you know, spiritual disease. So they weren't grateful to their creator and instead began worshiping stuff instead of God. They turned away from their creator. So, and by the way, those are your two options. Option number one, worship God. Option number two, worship something he made, right? Those are the two categories. So everything exists, falls into one of those two categories. Every night, think about this, every single night, the stars come out and they tell us of God's wisdom and his power. Every day the sun travels its course across the sky, affirming what the stars are telling us, that God is great. And it's so obvious that Paul says all people everywhere for all time are without excuse. That God has displayed his glory in what he's made. So Paul attributes people's um, you know, uh, unbelief not to God being elusive and obtuse, but to people's determination to suppress what is obviously true. So the, the blame falls not on God's inability to communicate to us, but it falls on people's unwillingness to receive the truth. When a people turn away from their creator, they begin questioning and, and eventually abandoning the created design, Paul says. So reality becomes a sworn enemy of the people. Reality is, in, in their thinking, confining and restrictive. So humanity or a society that abandons their creator eventually gets to the point where they abandon the obvious, even the obvious biological design of God. And at that point, men are with men sexually, women with women. And these, these kinds of things have always been around, of course, pretty much from the beginning, but mostly out on the fringes, out in the dark edges of any culture or society. And so a society or culture has reached the end of the line when the affirmation of this behavior is demanded and it's demanded to be considered virtuous and right. That's what Paul argues. 
So people must not only accept it, but must affirm it as virtuous and good. And Paul calls this the reprobate mind, the mind that's been thoroughly given over and disconnected from reality, from God's created order. So, so this is, you know, this is really ground zero of our culture wars today. And uh, so, now here's the thing, all religious Jews and all uh, people who affirm classical virtues would agree with this assessment. They would go, yeah, preach it, preacher. And this is why now tonight, after dealing with the unrighteousness of the pagans in chapter one, Paul deals with the self-righteousness of the religious person, the self-righteousness of the hypocrite. So self-righteousness and hypocrisy are a deep stain within the human being. It is deep. It's like the, the zealous son who would labor hours in prayer and his, his devotion, and he would wake early in the morning to read the scriptures, and on one occasion his father uh, awakens and comes downstairs to see his zealous son reading the Bible in the kitchen, and the son says, look, father, the rest of your children sleep away these precious hours. Why, I alone awake to praise God and seek him. And the wise dad says, it would be better to sleep than to awake to notice the faults of your brothers and sisters. We make a mistake when we judge and criticize. And our problem is that we have limited understanding and limited vision. We can't see a person's heart, and not only that, our vision is inevitably obscured by the flesh. We're slanted in our own favor. We're biased towards ourselves. And it's so natural to us that we don't even realize it. It's kind of like the, the person who decides to quit smoking and they go to the doctor and uh, you know, they were smoking three packs a day and they're, I'm done with this, I gotta go get some help. They go to the doctor and the doctor gives them some nicotine patches and some drug or whatever and says that, listen, you know, you're gonna be dealing with irritableness and nervousness that's gonna accompany your journey uh, in quitting smoking. So, okay, so the person, uh, you know, goes and then comes back a month later for a checkup. The doc asks about how's it going, you know, how's your mood been, and all of that. And the person says, well, doc, you know, I really haven't changed at all. The thing is, my spouse and all my friends, man, they're being idiots. I don't understand it. Self-righteousness is just a, as much a curse as unrighteousness. And Paul shows us in this chapter how God will deal with self-righteousness. Religious people, self-righteous people, and so-called good people need the Savior Jesus as much as outright pagan people do. That's kind of the whole point of the first three chapters. So Paul now gives us the principles by which God is going to judge good people. Verse one, therefore, you have no excuse, O oh man, every one of you who judges. 
For in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself because you, the judge, practice the very same thing. You don't realize it, but you do. I've discovered in myself that when I am condemning of others or shocked at someone else's sin, it's usually indicative that the same type of struggle exists within me. And maybe it hasn't come out, but it definitely is in. Paul says, you who self-righteously judge the pagans, the, the homosexual culture, you who are bitter and angry about someone else's sin, you who judge another, you also are guilty. Man, if we, could, if we could just understand this, that we're ultimately all cut from the same cloth, all humans born in sin. This is a heavy indictment. You mean, Lord, my condemnation of another is an indication of my own guilt? Yeah, that's what he's saying. The Greek word krino, Translated judge, it means to judge to condemnation. It doesn't mean to go, okay, that's a sin or that's a sin. It's not, not that, but you're judging a person to condemnation. You're stepping into the shoes of God. So you point the finger in anger and with a sneer on your face and you condemn people. And that kind of judgment is wrong because although it might be in, in a little different form, the same sort of sin is going on within us whenever we judge and condemn a person. That's what Paul is saying. It's there. It's like the guy who rants and raves about the crime problem and he's upset with the thieves and the corruption in society and the societal breakdown and, and yet he's pilfering office supplies from his place of work. His linen closet is filled with towels that say Holiday Inn on them. He justifies his actions by thinking, you know, well, I deserve it. Or it's like the, the owner of the company who moralizes about the thievery and the pilfering going on in the company, shocked and dismayed at the lack of integrity and character these days and in the people and so on, and yet he cheats on his taxes. Proverbs 21.2 says, every way of a man is right in his own eyes, but the Lord weighs the heart. That's, if you think about that verse, that's a scary verse. Like whatever we do, we think it's right. We think it's right. That's why murderers think they're justified, rapists, the most terrible, they think they're justified in what they did. So God looks at the guy who, who pulls a gun and robs the Circle K and says, thief. God looks at the guy who pilfers office supplies from his job and says, thief. God looks at the the owner who cheats on his taxes and says, thief. God sees through it all, obviously. 
So verse two, we know that such judgment of God rightly falls on those who practice such things. So God's judgment will be according to the truth because he will judge not only men's actions, but the motives that prompted the actions. Remember Hebrews 4.12, God's word is, is a, like a sharp two-edged sword. It's living and active. It cuts it between a, uh, uh, bones and marrow, discerns even the thoughts and the intents of the heart. God knows our intents and our thoughts. God told Ezekiel in Ezekiel chapter 8, he said, Ezekiel, I want you to, this was a vision, Ezekiel, go dig a hole in the wall of the temple and look in. So Ezekiel does, the temple, the house of God. And it says in Ezekiel 8.10, I went in and I saw, and there engraved on the wall all around was every form of creeping things and loathsome beasts and all the idols of the house of Israel. And before them stood the 70 men of the elders of the house of Israel with Jazaniah, the son of Shaphan, standing among them. Each had his censer in his hand and the smoke of the cloud of incense went up. Then he said to me, son of man, have you seen what the elders of the house of Israel are doing in the dark, each in his own room of pictures? For they say, the Lord does not see us. The Lord has forsaken the land. Ezekiel is looking into the hearts and minds of the 70 most spiritual men in Israel, the Sanhedrin. And it's nasty. It's loathsome creatures. It's the, the Egyptian idols, essentially. And all the while, they're swinging their incense, you know, representing the prayers ascending to God and all the religious, they're doing it all, all the while, immersed in the sickest kind of idolatry. The very people who claim to worship Yahweh God and serve in holiness and integrity were full of spiritual sickness. Nobody knew except God. Everybody looked at those 70 men, the, oh, man, they're holy. Outwardly, they appeared to be the most righteous in the land. So the Bible says that all things are naked and open to the eyes of him with whom we have to do. Can't hide from God. So he knows the secret motives of our heart. His judgment will be according to the absolute truth. So, verse three, do you suppose, O man, you who judge those who practice such things and yet do them yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God 
Or do you presume upon the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? You know, I think it's really easy for Christians to mistake the patience of God for approval. It's really easy for Christians who are living in sin and because nothing's happening, life's going good, God must be okay with this. Maybe he, he even approves of it. Maybe it's not that big of a deal. And so a person can be lulled into believing that God doesn't care or, or even that he approves of sin because God's judgment isn't immediate. God doesn't just judge people. <laughs> he doesn't. You know, this week, I'm so excited for Nehemiah this weekend. And, and you know, just this incredible revival is breaking out amongst God's people. But one of the key features of this, this revival is that the people are confessing their sins. They're, they're confessing, they're, they're naming their sins. They're weeping over their sins. They're, they're distraught because of their sins. And as they confess, the Lord, you know, washes their sins away and then worship begins to ascend from God's people. Confession is a gift. It's a gift. Christians are people, according to John 3.21, who do the truth. It doesn't say believe the truth, although we do believe the truth, but in John 3.21, Christians are people who do the truth. That is, our whole life, the trajectory of our life is, is embracing the truth, the truth about God, the truth about ourselves, and then getting ourselves in line and in harmony with God. And to confess, a compound word means to speak, and the second word, the same. So when we confess our sins, we're speaking the same that God says about our sin. We see it as he sees it. And when that happens, John says in 1 John 1, 9, if we confess, say the same, our sins, then God is faithful and just to forgive us our sins. You, man, that is the most awesome verse. I know a lot of you guys know it. You have it memorized, 1 John 1, 9, right? But you think about that. He's faithful. That means he, he's going to do it. But he's just, which means he would be unjust if he didn't forgive you. Why? Because Jesus Christ, the righteous one, paid the price for your sin. That's been taken care of. So now confession brings us into the experienced reality of that cleansing, of that sin that's already been paid for. It's our ticket to get free. 
I'm preaching Sunday's sermon already. I'm so excited. By misinterpreting the patience of God as I'm getting by with it, we essentially are despising God's kindness and his goodness. And a man who despises the goodness of God is fooling himself. The self-righteous person is perhaps most vulnerable to despising the goodness and the patience of God. What do you mean? Well, you remember the woman who was caught in the act of adultery. It was a setup, you know. The religious Jews were setting Jesus up through this whole scenario. And so they bring this naked, caught in the act of adultery woman, throw her down at the feet of Jesus, and they say to the Lord, Master, Moses said she should be stoned. What do you say? So there's the trap. The trap is if the Lord says to let her go, they would accuse him of violating the law of Moses. Because Moses says, if he says, stone her, well, he would no longer be known as the friend of sinners at that point, would he? Surely they had Jesus cornered. So Jesus stooped down, acting as though he didn't even hear what they were saying. He just is writing in the dirt as they're saying this stuff. He's just writing in the dirt. And they pressed him on the issue, and Jesus finally looks up and says, let he who is without sin cast the first stone. And he stooped back down and he just kept writing in the dirt. And then something truly amazing happened. One by one, these guys, who again had set that woman up, these guys, they, they had rocks, they dropped their rocks and they walked away. What did the Lord write in the dirt? We don't know. It's not recorded for us in the Bible. But the original language seems to indicate that Jesus was writing things against the accusers. The Greek word for wrote in John 8, 6, where the story is, grapho, it's used of the authoritative writing of the law of God. So, so it's likely that Jesus wrote the names of the woman's accusers, and then beside each name, maybe a woman, a place, a time, which would remind them of something they had done, or some fantasy they had indulged in, or some sin they had committed. And thus, Jesus demonstrated why rock throwing is generally not a good idea. Because we're guilty. So, our sin and the sin of humanity won't necessarily manifest itself outwardly. But in reality, it doesn't need to. 
Didn't Jesus say, if you even look upon a woman with lust, you are guilty of adultery. If you're angry with your brother without cause, you are in danger of judgment. In other words, sin is more than skin deep. It's a heart problem. The heart of the matter is the matter of the heart. And that's where sin emanates from. From the heart, you speak all manner of vile things and so on. And we, isn't it funny, we so often say, you know, when we speak out in anger and we say something terrible, well, you made me so mad. Well, I tell you, what came out of you wasn't put there by me. It was in there to begin with. So here's something to ponder. In the story of the prodigal son, I'm gonna be sharing that, that story tomorrow at chapel at our school. In the story of the prodigal son, who was guiltier? The prodigal who came back from just living in debauchery, taking his inheritance, just a bunch of money, and throwing lavish parties and, and you know, getting drunk and, you know, all the sexual stuff, all that stuff, prostitutes. And he comes back repenting of all that nasty stuff. Is it him or his older brother who dutifully stayed home and served? Who's more guilty? Something to think about. The elder son who complained and murmured because his father never did that for me, he never killed a fatted calf or gave me a ring, Dad. I want to suggest to you the older brother, who's typically, biblically speaking, a type of the Jews, but it applies to all people point is pagans and so-called good people are without excuse. That's the point. So somebody might sin in the flesh, the other in the spirit, both sin nonetheless. 2 Corinthians 7.1, let us cleanse ourselves from the sins of the flesh and of the spirit. You know, I think we, we tend to think of the flesh ones, I need to get cleansed from that because, man, that's not good. But we don't necessarily go deep and go, Lord, cleanse me of this attitude that I've been carrying around. Cleanse me of this, this negative, this, this thing I think about this person. Only God sees what's going on internally. Therefore, only he can judge righteously. That's Paul's point. 
So God's goodness can be exploited. He's incredibly patient, incredibly forbearing. Um, I presume upon the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, whenever I think I'm getting away with my sin, nothing bad is happening to me, so I guess I'll just keep on going because either God doesn't really care about it or maybe he approves of it. And so, so you know, you may think, well, I can sleep with my girlfriend or I can, you know, uh, uh, whatever, steal from work, or whatever it is. And in fact... God is aware of it the whole time. So his goodness and his kindness and his patience should be a thought that dawns on us. And we go, oh, God, you're so good. You're so good that I want to repent. Your goodness and your kindness is leading me to repentance. And when a person has that thought, when they, they think a right thought about God and his kindness, that's a great day. That's a turning point. Romans 2.5, 2.5. Man, oh man. Because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. <laughs> if this is your first time to midweek study, maybe you're not a Christian, you go, man, this book is judgy. Dang! Woo! I thought I was going to get a little bit of help for my life. And like, I'm just being told how rotten I am. Listen, the bad news must precede the good news. The diamond of the gospel shines brightly against a black and dark backdrop. The human condition as we started tonight, it's not pretty. So if, if Jesus is not your savior, then your life right now is, is a continuous adding to the wrath that will be poured out upon you in judgment should you die a Christless death. I'm not trying to be harsh. I'm just telling the truth. I don't edit the Bible. I don't apologize for the Bible. I do my best just to teach it. So, so everything, every day of your life, you are accumulating, you're storing up. It doesn't, it never diminishes, it only accumulates. Self-righteous people don't generally realize this truth. And, and if that person doesn't turn to Jesus at a certain point, well, let, let, me, let me tell you this story. I think this is, in the 18, allegedly this is true. I can't verify it. I looked for it on the internet. I couldn't find it, but allegedly this is true. Way back in the 1800s, 1880s, I think, uh, there was a bank teller who worked for Wells Fargo, 
And, uh, and he would steal one silver dollar every single day from work. And knowing how to, you know, cook the books, juggle the books, cover his tracks, this went on for days, months, years, until one day after 18 years of taking a silver dollar every day and laying, uh, laying it up in his attic, he was laying in his bed, and judgment came. All those silver dollars that were up in the attic, they fell through. The, the ceiling caved under the weight of all those silver dollars and killed the man who had stolen all that money. Now, it's a real-life parable. Self-righteous people do not realize that they are accumulating and accumulating wrath. And should they reject Jesus, one day, that the day is going to come when the silver dollars fall through. The goodness and the patience of God makes possible indulgence in the lives of foolish people but will bring about repentance in the hearts of wise people. That's the way it works. All right, let's grab a few more verses tonight. Verse six, he will render each one according to his works. To those who by patience and well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality, he will give eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury. There will be tribulation and distress for every human being who does evil, the Jew first and also the Greek. Now, as Paul will say, he says salvation to the Jews first and then to the Greeks. Well, notice, same holds true for wrath, to the Jew first. The Jews who reject Jesus, to them first wrath. And then the Greeks. Verse 10, but glory and honor and peace for everyone who does good, the Jew first and also the Greek. For God shows no partiality. So if you read this, it's inevitable to go, wait a minute, wait a minute. He will render each according to his works. Those who by patience and well-doing seek for glory and honor, number two, he will give eternal life. So, through, so eternal life is through works, it sounds like. Those who are self-seeking and so on, there will be wrath. Is Paul saying that somehow our, our works factor into our salvation, go toward our salvation? Now, most of you, I'm guessing tonight, are well aware that we are saved by grace through faith, and that's not of works, lest any of us should boast. So, that's a, that's a solid truth about salvation. God is not gonna share his glory 
with anyone. So Paul is saying that judgment will be according to works, and so we have to deal with that. So in other words, to the self-righteous person, to the, the moralist, God says, you'll be treated perfectly just when you stand before the great white throne, who Jesus will be sitting on that throne, by the way. You will have a perfectly just trial, perfectly just. If you've lived a perfectly, uh, uh, a perfect life, have done nothing but good and have completely glorified me in everything you've done, said or thought, you're gonna make, you're in. But who has done that? One person. One human being has done that. And that's Jesus. So the one, the person who trusts in Christ, the person who hasn't trusted in Christ, they will, they will be judged for what they have done in their life. And God he has a massive computer with memory that holds it all. Everything, every thought. But for the person who trusts Christ, their sins have been erased from the record. And so we will be judged for our works as well. There is a judgment for Christians. You can read about it in Romans 14 and in a couple other places, we'll stand before the judgment seat of Christ. So here's the difference. Our works, once you come to Christ, the Spirit of God in you, our works that God has ordained us to do, by the way, Ephesians 2.10, our works are sanctified and made holy by our high priest. And they are to our benefit eternally. And so there will be reward. It's an amazing thing. You know, God made our minds in such a way that we don't remember sins, you know, that we did even an hour ago. You know, if we remembered all of the wrong thoughts and the lousy attitudes and the covetous desires and the critical spirits and the lust and the impurities and the everything else that goes on in our minds, much less the things we actually say and do outwardly, I think we'd lose our sanity. <laughs> really do. I don't think anybody could survive that. So the self-righteous person, the moralist, who says, I'm a good person, what a, what a shock it's going to be when, when the books are opened and the sin is revealed. Like, whoa. And page after page after page after page. Listen, I was, I was shocked when I got saved, I know I've probably told this story a half a dozen times, but when, when I gave my life to Jesus way back in 1984, I thought myself a good person. I thought I was a good guy, at least better than most. I, I, I was on the, the right half of the curve, of the grading curve, I thought. And when I when I began to pray to receive Christ into my life, 
all of a sudden, my sins begin to parade across my mind. People that I mistreated, girls that I mistreated, uh, I mean, all kinds of just gnarly stuff. And I, I felt the weight of the guilt. I felt so sinful and dirty. All the while, God cleansing me. Imagine when the self-righteous person who goes to the grave thinking they don't need Jesus, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, to you know, go on my record. I'm, gonna, I'm, I'm running life on my record. I'll stand before God and let's go. And the books are open. forgot about what and they will be devastated and horrified at their own wickedness as I was mine presently we are we are singing in the big choir of humanity they say there's about 8 billion of us humans on the planet right now. And, you know, if we're a little out of tune, nobody really knows it. Right? In the choir? Like, you can be a little out of tune. And nobody really notices. But there's coming a time when every person has to sing a solo before God. They will stand by themselves and the books will be open. And in that day, without Jesus, those people will know how off-key they have been. So we're gonna pray. I'm gonna invite the worship team to come on up. And, and uh, do you need prayer tonight? Does anybody need prayer? There's gonna be people ready to partner with you in prayer. and. You can come on down to the front and get with a prayer partner. And uh, maybe you've got some decisions coming up in your life. And man, I need, I need direction. And, uh, you know, trust in the Lord with all your heart. Lean not on your understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge him. He'll direct your path. That's, that's, that's prayer. Yeah, that's how you trust in God. Lord, I'm gonna, I need to pray about this. I need to pray through. And I know you're going to make my path straight. Partner with somebody in prayer tonight. Maybe you need healing tonight. Maybe you've been dealing with a bad diagnosis or come and receive prayer. Maybe you're dealing with a problem relationship and you go, man, I can't. Every time I uh, encounter this person, I'm filled with this, this uh, my, I get knotted inside. It's like there's a bitter thing inside of me. And I want to get free from it. James 5, confess your sins to one another. Partner with somebody and get free tonight. Lord, thank you for your word. We love your word, Lord. And we're so grateful tonight that because of Jesus and his death upon the cross, our sins were borne by him. All we like sheep have gone astray, but the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. 
Lord Jesus, thank you that you have triumphed over sin and death so that any fallen, sinful human, whether they're religious or irreligious, whether they're, they're the, the so-called good person or the, the nasty sinner person, in your sight, we've all fallen short and everyone has an invitation to come to Christ. The ground is level at the foot of the cross. Lord, help us to reflect that in our attitudes toward people, especially in the crazy time that we're living in, Lord. So help us to think with your mind and to see with your eyes and to feel with your heart. Take our burdens tonight, Lord. Holy Spirit, would you speak to each and every one of us? What is the, the issue? Like the woman with the issue of blood, she couldn't get healed from it. What's our issue tonight? Lord, would you heal us? In Jesus' name, amen.